My name is Brian Lloyd. I am the movies editor of entertainment.ie. You are listening to the Revisit podcast. Hello and welcome to the Revisit podcast. My name is Brian Lloyd. I am the movies editor of entertainment.ie. You are listening to the first episode of this new six-part podcast series where we basically invite guests in, get them to pick a film that we'll then talk about and discuss and discuss their own attitudes towards it, why they picked it, what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it, and just basically have a bit of banter and a bit of crack with it. Um, The first guest on the series is Blind by Boat Club, and he picked the 1989 crime thriller Black Rain. Um, so what you'll basically what you'll hear is is an interview that we did a couple of months ago with Blind Boy when he was in town. He came into us, and we basically just sat down and shot the shit for God I don't know about forty minutes talking about Black Rain, Blade Runner, Vaporwave, uh, you know, God Japanese imperialism. We talked about all sorts of stuff, and also it was all talked about Black Rain. So, uh, yeah, hopefully you'll enjoy. But before that, I'm going to talk a little bit about Black Rain and the impact it had when it was first released in 1989. So, Black Rain. Black Rain was uh, first released in 1989, as I said. It was directed by Ridley Scott. It starred Michael Douglas, Andy Garcia... Ken Takakura, Kate Capshaw, who people will know as uh, now Mrs. Spielberg. And it was, and I said this to Blind Boy, this isn't, I'm not spoiling this, but it's kind of a crap film. It's not great. It has a 56% rating on Metacritic. It was written by a guy called Craig Bolatin and Warren Lewis, who, you know, they're more kind of known for doing rewrites and script doctrine as opposed to actual finished movies I would guess. I mean, the one thing that uh, Craig Bolotin in particular was known for was writing uh, Desperately Seeking Susan, which he did with Rosanna Arquette and Madonna. But Black Rain was released at a time when I guess Ridley Scott was really, I don't want to say coming to the end of his creative edge, if you like, but it was really one of those films where you could see that he did not have his heart in it at all. And, you know, Black Rain is often compared with Blade Runner in the sense of it's very much neo-noir. It has tons of neon in it. It's about, you know, characters who are lost, who are angry. And, you know, urban landscapes play a big part in it. But whereas Blade Runner, the city and urban landscape were a commentary on Harrison Ford's own loneliness and how he felt kind of disconnected from the world... In Black Rain, it's soulless. It doesn't really have any kind of particular uh, meaning to it. It just looks really, really cool. And this is, again, something we talked about with Blind Boy, was the fact that it is a gorgeous-looking film, but there is nothing in it going on. So the plot is this. Uh, Michael Douglas plays a character called Nick Conklin, which is just the most gas name for an NYPD officer, but there we go. Um, he's, pacing, he's facing possible criminal charges. Internal Affairs believes that he's involved with his partner in this uh, scheme where he's robbing uh, the proceeds of uh, crime and a corruption scandal. Now, he himself has financial difficulties. He's being divorced. Um, his partner is Charlie, who's played by Andy Garcia. They observe these uh, two men meeting with the Italian mob in New York. A, a very violent killing happens. 
and then it's revealed that the Yakuza are trying to make a play into New York. After there's a chase and what have you, um, Michael Douglas captures this character called Sato, uh, who was played by a very famous uh, Japanese actor called uh, Yusaka, and I'm, I'm sorry if I get this wrong, now. his name was Yusaka Matsuda, who actually died after the film uh, was released. Um, so they capture him, they're then told that they can't charge him, that he has to be extra- extradited to Japan, so they put him on a plane to Japan. <clears throat> when they get there, they're met by the police, but then the police, it turns out, were imposters. Uh, Sato gets away, and then they have to try essentially get him back but whilst they get him back they can only act as observers because they're foreigners they're americans they're in osaka and they're not allowed you know have their guns or do anything like that now on the surface you would think okay i've i've seen that film before that's a pretty basic standard crime thriller and it is that's really when you strip away all the beautiful visuals and, you know, Jan de Bond cinematography and Hans Zimmer's soundtrack and the style of it. It is a basic nuts and bolts crime thriller. There's nothing to it. And that is the key difference between Black Rain and Blade Runner. Blade Runner, there was so much going on. They were talking about, you know, individuality. They were talking about what we define as human life and what is life, what is sentience. It talked about relationships, it talked about women, it talked about slavery, it talked about capitalism, it talked about the future, it talked about all of these kind of things. And in Black Rain, it's just like an episode of Law and Order, almost. Um, and there's not a whole lot going on with it, but it has tons and tons of style. And in fact, you know, if you go on to, you know, Tumblr, for example, and you type in neo-noir, if you type in anything to do with Vaporwave, there's a very good chance you'll see screenshots from Black Rain, especially the ones where it was done in uh, Osaka, where, like, you know, the the lights are reflecting off the hoods of the car. And again, this is the thing about Black Rain, is that it is a gorgeous film, but it says absolutely nothing. Um, And it didn't do well either. I mean, the reception for it afterwards was not great. Um... A lot of people said that it kind of fomented uh, anti-Japanese sentiment, which was a big problem in the 80s uh, in America. It was a really, really big problem. Um, Ridley Scott as well said that he'd never film in Japan again because he had such problems with red tape and with the um, with the problems with actually trying to film in Japan and with the crews and what have you. Um, and also as well as the fact that, you know, the script just you know, was lacking, like, and, and, you know, that is a problem with a lot of Ridley Scott's films, is that, you know, he'll only get focused on the visuals, and he actually won't focus in on the story, and Black Rain is a good example of that, um, but, I mean, what came out of it was good, what came out of it that was good, well, it was the first film that Ridley Scott actually worked with Hans Zimmer, he'd go on to do Gladiator, Thelma and Louise, Black Hawk Down with him, and really, I think, kind of, set uh, Hans Zimmer up as one of the, you know, preeminent composers in, uh, you know, modern films. Um, Jackie Chan was nearly involved in at one point. He was actually brought on to choreograph some action scenes, but then he just didn't like it because he felt it didn't match his values or his image. Um, Ryuchi Sakamoto, who people will know as the composer who did stuff for uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence and The Revenant, and really, really, really well-known guy, um, he did a song for the soundtrack called Laser Man.
So, yeah, so that's kind of it. I mean, I I really did think it was an odd choice for a blind boy because, you know, if you've listened to his podcast, you'll know that he's fairly intense understanding and appreciation of, of movies. And to pick something like Black Rain, I mean, it, it was an odd choice, but we talked about that. We talked about why he picked it. And also as well, you know, it was the jumping off point for a very, very different uh Tangential, tangentially related uh, topics to it, so I guess it was an interesting way to kind of get a conversation going. So, uh, without further ado, we'll get into that. This is my conversation with Blind Boy about the movie Black Rain. Blind Boy, fair play to, for coming in. Um, I'm going to start off and challenge you a bit. Go on. Um, I watched Black Rain for the first time a long time last night. <laughs> and now here's the thing, right? It looks gorgeous. Yeah. It's 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 aesthetically it is beautiful. But as a film, it's kind of shit. It is a piece of shit. It is a pile Good, of I'm shit. Glad, okay, yeah, I'm glad yeah, you realise yeah, yeah. that. Um Black Rain is something that's like my favourite film of all time is Blade Runner, right? Yeah. And it took me a long time to admit that to myself because I had a sense of shame of calling a sci-fi film my favourite film. Because you know the way, sci-fi is like, um, it, 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 there's a banging novelty of it that isn't deserved. So right. for years and years and years, I struggled with myself to go, Blade Runner's my favourite film. I felt I should be saying something by Martin Scorsese. Do you know what I mean? Right. And then I looked at Blade Runner and said, no, 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 this is perfection in yeah. every single possible way. And it, it stands the test of time in the way that we'd say even something like Pulp Fiction doesn't. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So for Black Rain, I consider Black Rain to be Blade Runner's shit brother who wears bootcut jeans. I'm glad you said that, yeah. Do you know? Yeah. And when I watch Black Rain, it's, uh, to be honest, I'd nearly just, uh, it's something I'd fucking, I'd spark up a joint and leave Black Rain on the TV without sound. Ambient. Absolute ambience. Yeah. It is visually beautiful and stunning, but the story just does not fit how amazing it is. Yeah. Um. The lighting, I like. I often do like shot by shot comparisons between Blade Runner and Black Rain. The yeah. way that uh, Ridley Scott's using using depth and using backlighting, mm. the vibe of of neon noir, which I don't know what I call it. My favorite, I suppose it would be my favorite genre. It gives yeah. me a feeling. Yeah, yeah, it does, doesn't it? Black Rain for me is all about a feeling. Yeah, um, I would never sit someone down and say we got to watch this film called Black Rain. I wouldn't do that to anybody. Yeah, because you can't even really enjoy the shitness of it ironically that's it it's it's too kind of bland like it's yeah. it's it's a very very bland film like i mean the storyline of it is just so fucking obvious like it's just like michael douglas fish out of water goes yeah. to goes to japan to bring back this you know yakuza boss yeah brings andy garcia with him <laughs> he gets his head cut off yeah and then it's he's off in revenge like that's so for somebody like ridley scott for it the, the guy that made like the duelists yeah. blade runner you know, even further beyond that stuff like Telman Louise. Yeah. For him to make something like this, this is like, I, 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 it felt to me the whole time I was watching it, this was like, in the same way that Sonny Kubrick did Barry Lyndon. Yeah. And it's a bored genius. Yeah. I'm going to make the most beautiful looking film I possibly can, but I don't give a shit about the story. Um, it's, yeah, it's almost, it's like Ridley Scott was handed a poison chalice and it's like, they're playing me well. I can't do anything with this script, but I can sure as fuck make it incredibly visually beautiful. Yeah. And no one knows Black Rain. No one... No, yeah. It's not really discussed. Ever. Um, I came across it by accident and was just like, this is stunning. This is absolutely gorgeous. And I wanted what I get from Blade Runner. 
And I watch Blade Runner once a month, not to engage in the story, but to just have it there as a thing that's on because mm. it's so beautiful. Um, what Black Rain doesn't have is Blade Runner's soundtrack. Yeah. The way the soundtrack works with the visuals in Blade Runner is I've never seen anything like it, you know. Black Rain doesn't have that. Um, but Hans Zimmer did the soundtrack for it, though. I mean, I, I, I like the fact that they bring in the Japanese, the Japanese drums. Yeah, but I mean, again, it's... It's, it's nothing compared to Blade Runner. Nothing compared to it. And, and the other thing, too, is... is I don't want to say... Yeah, you could call Black Rain a, a, a racist film in the sense that it operates on what's called the Yellow Peril, right? Now, it's... What year is it? 83, 84? 80, 89 it was made. 89? Yeah. So if you look at Japan in the 80s, okay, there was a thing called the Marshall Plan, which is basically the US after World War II. They occupied East Berlin, they occupied Japan. Berlin was segregated, which was terrible for Germany. Mm. Japan was never segregated. So under the Marshall Plan, there was a lot of restrictions, particularly in how the Japanese could import steel. They weren't allowed to import any high-grade steel because they were afraid they would get revenge. The whole thing you have to look at with the US and Japan in the 20th century, the fear is revenge. Mm. We dropped two nuclear bombs on them. Holy fuck, what did they try and get us back? Mm. That was the gist. And that's how you have to view anything that the US did with Japan post-1950. And what the Japanese basically did was like, okay, you won't let us have any decent steel. This is why in the... 80s or 90s if you saw a Toyota one of it might have a yellow door yeah because it was they were falling apart yeah but that restriction on Japanese steel meant that electronics is where they started to shine so in the 80s Japan had this massive massive economic uh, bubble yeah that the whole world was looking at and it scared the living shit out of America so you see the unconscious fears of America and Japanese economic dominance mm. through how the Yakuza are portrayed in this film and it's the I've, it's they portray the Yakuza as, in a way that I haven't seen them portrayed in other films, they're much more thuggish and violent. Yeah. And the Yakuza aren't really like that. Well, they're, they're obviously, they're criminals and they're a yeah. show of cunts, but what makes, can I say cunt on this podcast? Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Um, what makes the Yakuza different, Japan basically regulates its criminal industry. It does, yeah. Which is unique to the country. So Yakuza organizations, organizations are... They're like tax registered mm. and they have offices and they're out in the open. And this is an agreement between the, the Japanese government and the AXA to basically go, crime's a thing, it's not going away. So yeah, how about so we, we regulate, regulate it? it as much as we can, yeah. Um, and as a result of that, violence, violence does occur within Yakuza circles, but it's incredibly rare and something that is a sign of chaos. Mm. So the idea of like in the film, the Yakuza takes out a, 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 an Uzi and sprays a restaurant. It would never happen. No. No. That's not their stick. And it, like, it's funny as well because what I found interesting about the whole idea of the Yakuza is that they are ridiculously racist themselves. Like, oh, they are incredibly time. xenophobic. Like, and most of them kind of, most of the Yakuza were formerly, they were absolute like ultra-nationalists. And in, in Japanese imperialism as well. Exactly, yeah. yeah. They were completely loyal to the and emperor. Today, like. if you look at the, at the Yakuza, they're the ones going around with big flags, basically. They're the alt-right in yeah. Japan, enforcing immigration, doing things like that, you know? But talk to me about, I mean, it, it, with that kind of context in mind, do you think the film addresses it in any kind of meaningful Mm-mm. way? doesn't, does it? The film is... It's surface Pure level. and utter American colonialism, uh, painting Japanese people as a violent, dangerous other that needs to be controlled. Mm. That's what the film is, uh, and they do it via the mechanism of the Yakuza. And... 
to be honest, it, it is a theme in Scott's films. Like, even if you look at Blade Runner. Mm. Now, one of the issues with Blade Runner is it predicts a future in 2019 where the Asian, uh, Asian economies have overtaken the world. And everything in Blade Runner is Asian, 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 Asian street signs, but there's very little Asian people. What about that now? Like, you have your man Hannibal Chow, like. But there's, there's one fella in blatant yellow face in it. Who's that guy? Edward Gaff. James Olmos. Gaff, is this? Yeah, Edward James Olmos. Yeah, like he's... But I think what they did... Now, not to, not to cut across you, but I think what they were trying to do there with him was, was that... Because I've read, like, have you seen Dangerous Days, the documentary? Yeah. yeah. When they talk about it, him, like, when he talks in spitty, uh, city speak, mm-hmm. it's like parts of it are Hungarian, parts okay. of it are... So, like, I think the idea with Gaff was, was that he was meant to be this amalgamation of, you're right, Asian, but also... Hungarian and Russian and okay. Caucasian, like so. I don't know if I'd call him yellowface, yeah, but it's teetering on the edge. I'll give you that. It's, it's teetering there. Um, now the other thing as well is people can say, well, the reason there's no Asian people in Blade Runner is because they're all on off world. Mm. They're the rich people, but I don't think they were thinking of that at the time. You I don't think, think it's, so? No, I think it's just early eighties Cold War. Uh, a phobia about I mean the big thing as well with America and Japan America's hugest fear was that Japan because Japan's quite close to Russia of course yeah. people don't think that but it is and at the very top of Japan in I think it's called Kobe I'm not sure but they had to reclaim that from Russia so America was terrified that post-war Japan would fall to communism mm. so they enacted the Marshall Plan as a way to basically go no we can't let this happen so it's all kind of Cold War tied in an othering of another nation and unconscious fear of what are those cunts doing with their electronics mm. you see it today with China if you look at um, the fear that America has with China and 5G mm. do you know because China have the 5G infrastructure that's going to be rolled out now in America they won't even let anyone who works for the government have a phone that belongs to Hawaii mm. you know so that's the new kind of yellow peril but it's a different one do you think I mean, viewing it in that kind of context and the idea of, like, you know, the arrow, the yellow peril, you know, American imperialism, American colonialism. I mean, even the title is suggestive. I don't even like, know what that means. Black Rain, no, it's to do with nuclear war. It was basically, oh, is yeah, it? yeah, it's basically what it was, was that um, after um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because of, it was to do with, like, precipitation. So that like, the, means the, revenge. It's literally, yeah. It's that is revenge. Yeah. Black rain. Black rain was what happened after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Wow! The, the the radioactive material basically rose up out of the ground, then precipitated in the air, and then when it rained, it was nuclear rain. So Acid it rain. is straight up yellow peril. Yeah. It's like oh, completely. They are getting their. Now the Yakas are here to spray the streets of New York with bullets. That's literally as yeah. revenge. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like it's very full on with it. That's what I'm saying. Like I'm. I'm I'm surprised. I it's thought not Black discussed. Rain was just a cool name. It is a cool name, but like it, ha- it, it has means a meaning. That. Like yeah. Wow. yeah. Um, I mean, right? Do you think it would be made today? No. Um. Okay. Wait. No. The closest thing to it is what would you say? Yeah. What would you say is the closest thing to it? Jared Leto. Uh, the Foreigner. Thing, What's yeah. it called? Yeah. Is it called foreigner. the Foreigner? Yeah. Like, did you watch it? I did. Um, it's muck. It had an absolute muck. But again, I like I. I love Hong Kong action cinema. I love Asian cinema. So there was parts of me that was very that was able to tolerate how bad that film was because right. it was in an area that I enjoy anyway. You know, yeah. Um, like in 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 my book that I wrote, I've got a story. I remember you telling me this. Yeah, yeah h- hugged up, studded blood puppet, and what this story is about. It's about a lad in Ennis who ends up 
going to a Chinese takeaway and above it, and this is happening in Ireland now, the Chinese triads grow cannabis in Ireland, you know, using slave labour. He ends up going to this and getting kidnapped and taken to China and then turned into like a tentacle octopus sex slave thing, you know. And I was trying to consciously use, in an ironic, self-aware way, the tropes that I have viewed in how Asia was perceived yeah. in a Western colonial lens to kind of highlight it, to hold a mirror up to it, you yeah, know, yeah. in a camp way, to go, here are the tropes that are being used, I'm going to use them deliberately to show that I, as a Western writer, how the hell can I write about Asian culture when the only thing that is, only perception I have of it is through this Western lens mm. that is essentially one of fear, do you know what I mean? Mm. What do you make of The Last Samurai then? I haven't seen that now. What's that? Have you not? No. That's the one with Tom Cruise. It was the one where he like joins, it was like Dances with Wolves <laughs> with the Samurai. Like. <laughs> no, I haven't, I haven't seen that. It's like... Is uh, it White, white Saviour? Oh yeah, on. oh yeah, God, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah of yeah. course, yeah, of course. Like, I mean, it's ba- that's it's literally Dances with Wolves, but the mm-hmm. Japanese Samurai. Like, um, I mean, it's, I'm glad to live in an era where that shit is now, the average person on the street now knows that's not good, that's not okay. Yeah. Do you know? Um, and in fairness, like, the Japanese are one of the few Asian countries, too, that they, they really never absorbed. Like, American cultural production stopped at the gates of Japan. Yeah. They took a look at it and said, we're going to take the bits of that that we like, but mm. do our own version. Mm. They never really fully embraced Westernism in the, the way, like, South Korea did. I was going to say, South Korea yeah. is very, very Western, you know, and they really embraced a lot of Western tropes. Yeah. Um, whereas Japan were like, we like what you're doing, so we're going to take the bits that we like, but no thanks for the rest of it. Mm. I mean, even fucking, like, they've, Japan has always traditionally been an isolationist country. In the 1890s, Japan was refusing to engage in trade with anyone. And the US basically, it, it wasn't blockaded, called... Blockaded, wasn't it? Yeah, they, they blockaded it, but they went up to, it wasn't called Tokyo at the time. But they put naval ships in the harbour of Tokyo and bombed Tokyo until Japan agreed to trade. Mm. And they were like, okay, stop bombing us, we'll fucking trade for fuck's sake. That was the Meiji Restoration, I believe, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, What's your favourite scene of Black Rain? Or your favourite shot, at least? Favourite shot would be, it's close enough to the start of the film when Michael Douglas is chasing the main Yakuza fella through the city and you just have lovely montages, beautiful backlighting, it's just visually stunning. It reminds me very much of um, a similar scene in Ghost in the Shell, the original anime version, where, I, I, to be honest, I'd say the director of that was looking at that scene because mm. it's very similar. It's running through markets, um, going from large cityscapes to smaller areas, and I just love watching it. And as well, there are shot... It, it, if you analyse the chase scene shot for shot at the start of Black Rain with the chase scene at the end of Blade Runner where Deckard is chasing Rutger Hauer... Yeah. The, a lot of the shots are nearly identical. In particular, yeah. one where Deckard points the gun at the camera. You see Michael Douglas with the exact same thing, same backlighting. So, seeing those two similarities with with the two direct with the same director mm. in both films, for me as someone who makes and directs videos, yeah, that was unreal to see because then you get to see the puppet strings, the little tricks that are being used when you see them side by side. So that's my favorite scene in it. Does that? It I gets mean, boring after the second half. I'll be honest. I does. That's what I'm saying. Like yeah. it's, it's. I. I like I said. I watched it last night. I got up to the bit where they had the. Um, it was actually near. Yeah, it was about. Yeah, it was about an hour and a half in. It was the bit when they're in the. Um, the uh, the metal foundry. Yeah. And then what's his face? Michael Douglas gets caught by the cops. Yeah. And then. But after that, then I was like, oh, I geez. don't even know how the film ends. 
Um, it's in a graveyard. I know it ends in a graveyard. <laughs> yeah, so I know should we, we should know more than that. We should, like, shouldn't you know? we? Like, but I, just, I mean, Blade Runner ends with that beautiful tears and rain speech. Of like, course, I mean, yeah. Jesus Christ. I could talk to you. Like, every fucking scene of Blade Runner, I can yeah. point to it. And, but Blake, but, I mean, Black you, Rain, not I know much. we're here to talk about Bla- uh, Black Rain, but I, I don't think it's possible to talk about Black Rain without also talking about Blade Runner. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, the only thing that gives it. Yeah, the only thing that gives it a bit of legitimacy. Um... The other thing about Black Rain is that it contains some of the most beautiful examples of uh, Los Angeles Magic Hour. Yeah. Um, in particular, the scenes in Michael Douglas's apartment. Yes. And you've this gorgeous vista of a bridge on the outside, and the most it's New York. It's the Brooklyn is it Bridge. New York. Yeah, is it? it's the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah. Black Rain is in New York, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Okay, I had in my head that it was Los Angeles. But it's, it's similar. But you, when you see that color of lighting. Oh. You think the Los Angeles? Because I always it's, think it's of it's almost um, like he's taking the piss with the Golden Hour. It's like yeah. that's too golden, man. That yeah. does not exist in reality. But, Chill out. But that was a big thing though in the eighties. Like remember moonlighting? Like yeah, that was just all done in Golden Hour, yeah. Los Angeles. Like and it's the most like it's very expensive to do. Um, what was a recent one? La La Land was shot entirely in Golden yeah. Hour. And if you think what that does to a budget, like oh, it's crazy. That means you've got three hours in the morning. For people who don't know, Golden Hour is when you shoot something outside in full sunlight but the sun is at an incredibly intense angle like if you shoot with the sun right above you it's disgusting yeah. no one does that it's you flat know? yeah yeah and that's why as well it's so hard to get something to look nice in Ireland yeah it's. I mean the only way you can kind of shoot anything remotely interesting in Ireland is indoors indoors yeah you know? um, like our video Dad's Best Friend I'm convinced that the 50% of why that video works is because the exterior shots we managed to get golden hour by chance Really? We shot it in June. It just happened that the the availability for the cameraman and director was 7 o'clock in the evening in June. Yeah. And we have beautiful tinted golden sun at a certain angle. I, you know, Barry I, Lyndon actually is a great example of how uh, the failure of shooting in Ireland. Yeah. But I mean, I suppose like the, what happened there was because... Stanley Kubrick was ran out of the place by the rail, like I know, yeah. But like, <laughs> but 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 like, it's but he refused to use natural light. Well, yeah, that was it, yeah, or, or, or artificial light, yeah, yeah. Which I kind of enjoy, in fairness. It's nice. Like. I mean, it, you can't enjoy Barry Lyndon without understanding what was going on with the light. Yeah, I mean, there's fight scenes in it, and one shot is overcast, one shot is in full sunlight, mm. and it's chaos. Yeah, but Kubrick is like, this is what I want to do, lads. I heard this. Here's how I want it to look. Yeah, like, um, kind of- I think I did a podcast on it actually, where I. There's so many shots in Barry Lyndon where you can go to paintings from the 18th and 17th century yeah. and put them side by side and that's what he was trying to do. Uh, in particular, the likes of uh, John Constable's paintings, side by side. He, he, like, he would, Kubrick would wait there for ages for a cloud to move across to get the perfect framing of it. You mm. know? And I've never seen it done that perfectly before. I mean, have you seen The Duelists? Mm-mm. You should watch The Duelists. Is that modern? No, it's, it was like 1970. It was Ridley Scott's first film. And basically, it was him trying to do Barry Lyndon, but with an actual pulse, with something actually happening in yeah. it. Like, it's Harvey Keitel and Keith Carradine, and the two of them are French officers yeah. in Napoleon's army. And the two of them are basically fighting each other over a, sp- of a period of, like, 20 years. Like, Is it good crack? It's great crack. But okay. it, it looks exactly like it was basically Ridley Scott trying to copy Barry Lyndon. But doing it on a much less a much less budget and not as much time devoted to making it look as gorgeous, but it still does look gorgeous. Like, mm-hmm. and I think that's it's funny that Ridley Scott kind of built his career not out of copying Stanley Kubrick, but certainly out of taking inspiration from him. Like, because like you look at the Duelist, or if you look at Alien, like Alien takes yeah. bits out of two thousand and one. Big time, you know. Um, but he doesn't. Well, so do what it are you going to do as well? But Alien's what nineteen eighty. There's not much to look at by that stage. No. You know? Um, an interesting thing with Kubrick too, 
and his use of of light. And he said it himself. He grew up in not Sheffield, but a, a, an English city that had a major steel industry, right? Yeah. And when he used to walk home from school, there was this massive bridge he used to walk over, and underneath that were steel foundries. Yeah. And the opening scene of Blade Runner, where it's on the city with the plumes yeah. of flames, he said that's his childhood looking at these steel mills, and that was a huge influence for him in how he used lighting then yeah. in sci-fi. Yeah, Tony Scott said that. I remember Tony Scott said oh, that. Sure, yeah. Oh, his poor old brother. Yeah, he was saying that in the documentary. Did he ever do anything good? He did. I mean, I would argue that uh, Top Gun was it. Tony Scott directed Top Gun. You didn't know that? No, I don't know much about. I know. I know he had a sad end. That's all I know. And yeah. he was never as, as big as his brother. Like no, yeah, he did. He did Top Gun, and he did this film called The Hunger with uh, David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve, wow. which was about uh, vampires, and uh, it's really it's known for being basically looking like a Roxy music video. Isn't mm-hmm. that it's all like billowing curtains and yeah. backlit, and it's all like long pauses of pe- beautiful people in a gorgeous environment doing absolutely nothing like. Yeah, The Hunger, The Hunger, uh, Duelist and Top Gun. Here's a, a controversial one for you. Go on. Give me a hot take. A hot take. Um, Ridley Scott is the Michael Bay of his of his times. Oh, absolutely. You think so? Absolutely. He is, isn't he? Absolutely. Like, he was a commercial director. Like, Ridley Scott yeah. made, made his money making adverts. Yeah. And in adverts, it's basically, you've got to tell the story in the most concise way possible. Make it look as good as possible. Yeah. But you are selling something at the end of it, like... Yeah, and when you look at like in like top like Top Gun, perfect example. That's a recruitment for the U.S. Navy. Yeah, and yeah. it's all shot to look like an advert for the U.S. Navy. And like Ridley Scott, when he did um, the nineteen eighty four thing for Macintosh, that's again. What's that? He did he do an advert for, Ma- for Macintosh for or? Macintosh? Yeah, the nineteen eighty four advert. Nineteen eighty four, like the the year, or was it something to do with no, Orwell? It was to do with Orwell. It was basically it was that one where your one runs through this building with a big hammer and fucks it up with a screen. Okay. It's it was this ad that um Steve Jobs basically hired Ridley Scott to make the first advertisement for the Macintosh. Yeah. And what Steve Jobs was basically saying was was that up until now IBM have controlled the home computer market. Well Macintosh is gonna change everything. Yeah. And it's 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 a joke in it that it, you don't see the Macintosh in the ad at all. Yeah. There is nothing to tell you. If you were to watch this ad, you, there was nothing to tell you that it's actually about a computer. Which is pretty fucking courageous in the yeah, 80s. Yeah, it was wow. really ballsy. And it was yeah. like, that was the whole thing about like Jobs was that he was so focused on design. Yeah. Like computers were almost the second, yeah. second fiddle to it. But um, yeah, like when you watch that 1984 ad and then you look at Blade Runner, you can absolutely see the correlation between the two. But it's just that 1984 has a commercial end, whereas Blade Runner doesn't, I don't no. think. Like, Jesus. Blade Runner is not commercial at all. Like, Do you think there's anything Scott has done that is on par with Blade Runner? And, like, if, Jesus Christ, what, like, I can't call Blade Runner a commercial film. No. It, it went too far beyond. Yeah. Like, it, now you look back at it and everything has copied it, like, but to get the genre of sci-fi and go, I'm going to tell an existential film noir like a French story mm. about humanity and it just happens to have a bunch of sci-fi shit going on mm. I'm fucking hell like I mean you could probably go into all the stuff like Tarkovsky and Stalker and all that kind of yeah. thing like, there's a lot of that that has that and like Solaris as well that has yeah. all that kind of stuff but no I mean for mainstream commercial cinema there is no there is nothing like it like yeah and it's funny that like to bring it back to Black Rain that Black Rain has all the elements of Blade Runner, but none of the substance. None, no substance. It just it has that look. Yeah. Um, I'm doing a thing. I've got offered uh, to do some podcast in Los Angeles sometime in either 2019 and 2020. Oh yeah. 
and what I'm aiming with it is to do the three gigs in November 2019 yeah. and for each one of those gigs to maybe try and get the set director from Blade Runner Blade Runner because yeah, yeah. when I saw Blade Runner when I was 13 the opening shot where it says Nove- Los Angeles November 2019 I don't know it, it, I was just like that's not that far away mm. and I just was thinking into the future what would I be doing then what would the world be like and I kind of made a promise to myself if I'm still alive, I want to go to Los Angeles in 2019. I, I, I have to. I have to do it. I can't yeah. not because Blade Runner was too important for me growing up. Um, and do you know, to be honest, I got into Blade Runner with the, the, the video game. Oh, the, the Westwood the, one? The Westwood one, yeah. yeah. Which captured it perfectly, captured the soundtrack perfectly, the feeling of it. That's what got me into it, you know? Yeah. What do you make of 2049? It is what it is. But look, all I need to say about 2049, I went to see it in the cinema, but I have never even bothered my hope looking for it online, you know? I haven't like I haven't gone back to it. What's your problem with it? I mean, not your problem, but like, what's your take on it? Like, um, well, I give you mine while you're thinking. You, yeah, go on. I thought it was a beautiful film. I yeah. thought it was absolutely gorgeous. It absolutely did not need to exist. Blade Runner was a perfect film. I didn't need to know beyond the end of it. That's it. What there? There's a very strong case to be made for 2049 to have been made as something completely separate. Yes, it can exist by itself. You don't need Harrison Ford in it. Mm. This let it be this new thing that Ridley Scott is doing, and it's a futuristic Ridley Scott thing. I'm there for it, but get it away from that beautiful first film that's so revolutionary you can't go, you can't touch it mm. because it invented too many rule books. Yeah, what do you do with fucking Blade Runner? You, you can't. It is what it is. Yeah, and anything beyond it. So get 2049, it. like I went into it consciously aware as well that like I'm going to be disappointed because I have yeah. to be. You can't not disappoint. But I just I'm not I, you know I'm not looking to stream it I'm not looking to do anything it's just yeah. I saw it once that was enough um, the soundtrack didn't do it for me in the way that the first soundtrack did but then I'm just being a fucking hipster you know yeah well like I mean if they got your man Johan Johansson to do it like I thought that would have yeah. might have got might have done something with it maybe I don't know for me for what I was if, if, if okay if I'm going what am I looking for from 2049 I'm finding it in the likes of Only God Forgives. Yeah. By, what's his fucking name? Nicholas Winding Nicholas Winding Refn. So, Only God Forgives and Neon Demon. That's where I'm going for my Blade Runner horn now. That yeah. does do it for me. Yeah. It has that thing that, that makes me flutter inside about Blade Runner. I find it in those two films. I do not find it in 2049, you know? Mm. Uh, in particular, Only God Forgives. It's just, <clears throat> I'll throw that on in the background. It's, what I love about it is the way they treat the background characters, if you look at Only God Forgives and look at anyone who's in the background, people in the background are choreographed to be still. Yeah. So it's completely unnatural and it feels much closer to a video game. Yeah. NPCs with a script on how they must move or shift their shoulder. That's what Winding Refn did with the background people in Only God Forgives and you end up with a, a very druggy feeling of not knowing whether it's real or not. Yeah. But I think, like, with Only God Forgives, I mean, I think there is an element to it that it's so stylized that it's it almost rejects the audience. Completely, yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's not, not in, trying to be real. No, and not even that as well, but, like, you compare it to something like Drive, which was, had all the style, but it was trying to bring the audience in. Yeah. Through Ryan Gosling, the fact that he was this, like, basically a serial killer. Yeah. But he was trying to connect with the audience, whereas in Only God Forgives... It's the same thing again, but he's keeping the audience. What do you think about Ryan Gosling as the choice for that character? Do you think it works? 
in Only God Forgives. Even it, like he essentially plays the same character in he does. Only God, God Forgives and Drive. You yeah. know, they're almost like spiritual sequels, but not. Um, just he's he's a, he's playing Clint Eastwood. He's, yeah, he's Clint Eastwood in in the spaghetti westerns. Yeah. Do you think he kind of pulls it off, or is he just too? Do you think he's too good looking? Like too good. I, I just I can't imagine that that fella kicking someone's head in in a lift. You know, I I need someone with a bit of fucking a bit of grit. Uh, but I mean, I think Danny like, Dyer. Yeah, I'm well, dead serious. I like you he, know that Danny Dyer was almost. Uh, Edward Furlong's role in American History X. I don't, man, I don't believe you. You are acting the con now. The second in in line to be Edward Furlong's role in in, in American History X was like 17-year-old Danny Dyer. I swear to God, you can look it up. I am going to look that up. Imagine the world will be changed. I, but like, he's a great actor. You no, know, he is. But like, I mean, what's that one he did? Uh, the Brendan Behan one, Barstool by like, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. The business was a great one as well. I like that. And he's bringing an energy to EastEnders that doesn't belong in EastEnders. He is. It's he's a real actor. And Danny Dyer, I, I love the man. I think he's fantastic. Yeah. He's humble. I know. I appreciate him. Yeah, yeah. I do. I appreciate what but he he's does. A, he like, is a serious actor. Like. Yeah, like he's a modern day Bob Hoskins. Like, yeah. I appreciate what he does. Like the fact that he's. You know he's working class. That he has that accent. That he's mm. not gonna. He's not gonna fucking put it on just because it'll get him more of whatever. Yeah. Like, and um, he's very honest about this is my fucking job. Piss yeah. off. Yeah, it's none of your business what I do to fucking fuel my house. Yeah. this is what I'm at. Leave me alone. Yeah, I appreciate that level of honesty about it. But imagine young Danny Dyer, Edward Furlong's role in American History X. I don't. Jeez, I can't. I know. I can't see it. Like I but can't. He see obviously it. nailed it in the uh, in the auditions. Yeah, like. yeah. I've never heard him do any accent other than Danny Dyer, but I'm guessing he does get cast as Danny Dyer a lot. You know. Yeah, but like I mean, it's it's like Jeff Goldblum. Like when you hire yeah. Jeff Goldblum, you know what, are you what you're gonna getting. do. What are you gonna do? Like you're this you're is Jeff. You're Jim. Nicholas Cage, obviously. I disagree with you on that. Really? I will, and I'll tell you. I'll give you another film to watch. Uh, Mandy. Okay. Right. If you watch Mandy. It is a... You would love it. You would absolutely love it. Um, because it has that aesthetic that... Not so much that Blade Runner has, but that kind of otherworldly feel. Yeah. It's very experimental. But what Nicolas Cage does in it is that... Nicolas Cage... And I love Nicolas Cage. I think he's one of the most underrated actors out there. But I think what he's able to do with any performance he gives is, is that... He can... When he gives a shit... Yeah. He is the best actor out there. And when it's so clear and obvious that when he cares... When you're watching Mandy, do you forget you're looking at Nicolas Cage? Well... Because that's the issue with Nick. It's like, Nicolas Cage, I love him, but I'm going to see Nicolas fucking Cage. No, but I mean, I think... uh, Maybe I wasn't clear. With Jeff Goldblum, it's Jeff Goldblum doing the same thing in every film. Yes. He's being himself. But when Nicolas Cage... walking too. Yeah. But when Nicolas Cage does it, he's, he's so... He gives of himself so fully that he... I know he cares. Yeah. I know he cares. I know he wants to make this scene be funny, or he you wants. You feel tired for him sometimes. Yeah, I do. Yeah, but Jeff Goldblum, it's like they turn the camera on. It's like, oh, now I'm gonna fump for around the place, and I'm gonna be all. Ugh. Yeah, and like it's he's there's no effort. There's no effort. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying with Jeff Goldblum. There is never any effort, but with Nicolas Cage, fuck, he cares. Yeah, he, he's throwing everything he can at the screen, and I love that. I love that intensity. Like, um, I felt the same about. I had a bad opinion about Tom Cruise in that I felt that Tom Cruise just plays Tom Cruise in every film that's true but then I saw the one recently where he played um, no Barry Seal he played oh, Barry oh um, what's it called American Made yeah yeah. and watching that I about five minutes in I forgot I was watching Tom Cruise yeah and that's I'm a really good film re- it's, it's fantastic it's yeah. excellent 
and it made me um, just respect him as an actor, as an actual actor, because I, I forgot it was Tom Cruise, and that's hard to do because Tom Cruise is such an icon. Yeah, I mean his early stuff was incredible, like yeah. Taps and. I know, like even cocktail. There's a, there's a yeah. place in my heart for cocktail, you know. Yeah, like it's and it is cocktail. Actually, has a similar visual aesthetic to Black Rain. It does have a bit of neon noir. Yeah, there is that sense as well in the eighties of a, a fetishization of kind of forties and fifties culture. Completely, uh, where you see uh, noir coming back. Yeah, but with the neon vibe, which I'm all for. I love it. Yeah, Akira as well has that vibe. You know, I'm surprised it's taken us as long to mention Akira. Yeah, yeah. Um, I my I, though I my preferred Akira is the original one where it's not cleaned up they cleaned it up and put a new I don't so much mind the dub but the original one where you can see the grittiness and the dirtiness of the film and you can see the brush strokes and the paint mm. but where they cleaned it up and it, they made it like I I, lo- <clears throat> I love anime mm. but once they stopped using human hand and paint brushes in anime I just I can't do it anymore why is that? because for me anime was about the human the, the human, human hand context. like when I was a kid I'd be, it was heartbreaking actually, I'd be nine years of age and I'd get manga video, so I'd get something like Akira on video. Mm. And when I was about nine or ten, what I wanted to be was a background artist for anime. That was what I wanted yeah. to do. I wanted to move to Japan and wanted to be the person who paints the backgrounds. Like Crying Freeman and yeah, Guyver and all that Christ, kind of Christ, like yeah. the backgrounds are beautiful. Mm. But I used Perfect to pa- pa- pause the, the B- B- VHS mm. and sit down at my sketch pad and try and draw what was on the screen. But remember the days of pausing VHS. Of course, yeah. You got 10 seconds when the it would start tracking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you can't draw it. And, and then you can never really go back and perfectly pause again. Mm. So it was incredibly frustrating. And then DVD comes along now and you can perfectly pause the screen. Mm. So uh, it wasn't the same when I was older. Like, you have to be nine for that shit, you know? Yeah, I suppose it's kind of the mystery of it, isn't mm. it? Okay. I've gotten really into old 80s anime soundtracks recently too. yeah. They're really, they're so joyous. They're joyous and they're, Japanese music is really, there's a resurgence at the moment in a type of music called Japanese city pop. pop. I know, I listened to that podcast, it was really good. Oh, thank you. Um, I fucking love city pop. But I I was trying to make sense of, you know, why now is city pop working with, we'll say, kind of nerdy kids who are making memes. They Mm. love their city pop. And the reason is, is that the people who started making video game music in the late 80s, the Japanese lads that were doing that, they were listening to City Pop yeah, on the radio. Yeah, Kondo so, and all that. Yeah, man. so they're... And City Pop was basically... It came about because of there were so many Japanese people living in California. So th- that exchange between Japanese people and their Japanese cousins in California listening to Western kind of pop and a little bit of jazz. Yeah. And it translated over. So Like Steely Dan and... Steely Dan, yeah. Yeah, that's basically just... Steely Dan writ on a on a larger scale. Very much so, yeah. yeah. And yeah, Jesus, video game music, some of the complexities in it, musically, and manga music is the same thing. Mm. Old school 80s manga. I was listening to the Aratsuki Doji soundtrack. Do you remember Aratsuki Doji? You haven't seen that? I haven't seen that one, no. I'm up, like, I know a little bit about manga, but not a huge... Like, I know the, the big hits, like, as in, you know, like, Crying Free Man... Uh, Akira, Perfect Blue. Th- those hits would have been basically, and there was a company called Manga Video yeah, in the nineties, yeah. and they did and, the Street Fighter two. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was their main hit before Ghost in the Shell. So anything they kind of commissioned for a Western audience went big in the nineties. And Oratsuki Doji was one which was it's technically hentai. It's very graphically sexual. Yeah, and when we used to go to Extra Vision as kids, remember there was the strictly over eighteen sticker. the adult section. 
not even the adult sections like there's 18s and then some of them had a yellow sticker that basically said this one's really over 18s I remember there was well in in Klein we had Sunset Video and they basically kept them videos under the counter and you had to go up and specifically ah that's different yeah yeah no that was the in extra vision they would never have an under the counter but there was stuff that almost made it past the censor right and Aratsuki Doji was one of them because it's just so sexual you know it's tentacle porn yeah that's basically what it is so Um, but the soundtrack to it is amazing. This yeah. really complicated, shitty jazz done on one keyboard, you know, which sounds like Sonic the Hedgehog music. Yeah. I don't know how the fuck we got from hentai to... Actually, that's the way but it works. that's the way it kind of works. No, they're all, to be honest... It, it, it's they're it's all Japanese it, culture. Yeah, like it's, Japanese it's pop all, culture, yeah. You can make a connection between Black Rain and 80s manga, not a bother. Yeah. Easily. And it's all the same type of shit. And you see, wit would say, the yellow peril of Black Rain you see the same thing in anime at the same time where it's reversed, where the themes of post-apocalyptic stuff in 80s anime is so strong. Yeah. And what it is, is it's Japan experiencing this massive economic boom, but it only existing because of the recent memory of we were nearly wiped off the fucking planet by Mm. two bombs. So, like Akira, Akira again is set in 2019, but it's new Japan. It's like the Yanks had another pop at us in 1992, blew the whole place apart and now this new city has emerged from the craters of that, you know? Yeah. So you can't look at 80s American colonial films about Japan and not echo it with similar fears. It's a victim-abuser relationship. Yeah, it is, very much Culturally, so. between the two countries, you know, and it's reflected in the cinema and the, and the music and everything. Like Yeah, like Die Hard had that whole thing. Like, it I mean, did indeed, yeah. Like the whole thing with like Nag- um, Nakatomi Plaza like, and the yeah. fact that it was... Set in this, you know, Japanese conglomerates yeah. building, like, and it's, you know, I've I've said it before, and I haven't, I've, I've always, I've, I need somebody to fucking do it, but there, I am fully convinced there is a uh, socialist reading of Die Hard that can be done <laughs> in the sense of uh, Alan Rickman and all the Germans are basically ultra capitalists, yeah, and John McClane is the working man, and the fact that they're fighting it out in uh, Japanese conglomerates. Uh, Building. That's interesting. I'm telling you, there's a there's a, there's like a in, scholarly in a kind of, essay to be written about that. They leave. Don't give me that look. I know you were giving me that look because I've done like, this before in the film show where I've said that, and you're just like, sorry. Um, they live similar thing. Yeah, you've got uh, John Nada as this uh, working class steel worker. Yeah, taking on the corporate powers of brainwashing. You know, it yeah. is ultimately shoehorning in leftism. Yeah, into the thing. Actually, there's a fucking podcast we need to do. Have you done something on Day Live yet? Well, I've interviewed John Carper before, yeah. Fuck off. Yeah. How'd you get a chance at that? I basically rang him up and fucking hounded him for like two weeks. Really? Like, like I did with you to get you in here. I, to, <laughs> I hounded him for two weeks. Well, where's he living? He lives in he lives in California. I did it over the phone. Okay, grand. Um, but he was over here when he was over here playing Vicker Street. Uh, was that what his music was? It yes. Yeah. 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 Apparently um, he has a, a fan on stage and it just makes his tiny amount of hair blow. Yeah, just, yeah, has this whole thing. <laughs> I get it. Like, I mean, it's, 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 yeah, but he's very, the thing with John Carpenter is that he just does not give a fuck. No, he doesn't. He just, and like, trying to interview him is very, very difficult because I'm sitting there literally jizzing myself about the thing and Starman and They Live and Assault on Precinct 13. He doesn't give a fuck. He's just like, yeah, I made them. What about it? Like, and I'm like, but you know, what was going on when you were doing this? And he's all like, oh, I just want He just to- goes on the feeling. Yeah, he just, he's, it's so instinctual with him. Like, yeah. But I think the, uh, just, this is the final point now, but with John Carpenter, the fact that he was so fucking badly treated by both, you know, critics of the day and the audiences of the day, 
they couldn't handle how nihilistic his films were. Yeah. Like, you look at the thing, that is the most yeah. nihilistic film out there. Bleak. And 1982, people were watching fucking E.T. and thinking yeah. that everything was going to be great. Yeah. They couldn't handle... And, like, you know, that was in the time of, like, you know, communism, yeah. Red Scare, possible nuclear World War Three, Ronald yeah. Reagan, all this shit. They couldn't handle nihilism on screen. No. But now that we're removed from it, although maybe we're heading back into it, who knows? I don't know. I mean, if, if, if this... The, That's why we the, can handle it now, is what I'm saying. The two Cold War peaks, if to see it reflected in culture, is obviously 62, incredibly dangerous time. That, that's when you had the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm. But you saw the biggest flaring up again around 83, 84, because there was a thing called Operation Abel Archer. That's right. Have you seen Deutschland 83? I haven't. Watch it. It's very is good. It a good crack. Great crack. It's all What's about, about Abel Archer. Is it? Yeah. Um, and that, for, for the listeners, Abel Archer was NATO were doing exercises... Um, on the Russian border all over and Russia were just like is this an exercise or an actual invasion and it came quite quite close again to proper nuclear destruction yeah you know? it's crazy like the fact that like the the NATO was like it was worked it worked as this missile exercise yeah and they had told Russia that it was an uh, that it was an exercise but they assumed it was a prelude to war yeah because it's like it what are you doing why have you got all your forces on our border and we're, yeah. they're just like well we're just trying to see what would happen yeah but uh, Russia didn't know yeah yeah Okay, we've gone way over time. I'll leave it there. Blowing cool. by, thanks a for coming in. Yort. Yeah.